Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T, and I hope you're having a great day. Today, I want to start off with the information that I've been able to obtain from people who actually knew Debbie Collier. One is a woman who rented an apartment from the realtor office where Debbie worked as the front office manager. The woman rented the apartment between 2015 and 2017, so those were the years she interacted with Debbie. The woman told me that Debbie was a very sweet, kind lady. Each month when this woman would go to the office to pay her rent, she would chat with Debbie. The woman was going through a divorce at the time, and Debbie having already been divorced from her first husband, who I refer to as Mr. Bearden, was able to give this lady advice and support. Here's what this lady wrote about Debbie Collier, and I quote, She just said that she knew how I was feeling going through the divorce, scared, nervous, anxious, excited, but we never talked about specific incidents that I can recall. I do, however, remember discussing my son, who was giving me some trouble at the time, and her discussing her daughter, giving them some trouble. Never any specifics, but you could tell talking about it was painful, end quote. So that daughter that Debbie spoke to this woman about was Amanda Bearden. Two other people who knew Debbie Collier, her niece and a friend, have both said that the person walking into the family dollar store is definitely Debbie. They both mentioned Debbie's very white skin color and her thin legs. So the people who actually knew Debbie as well as the police, are all saying that the woman walking into the dollar store in that much-watched surveillance video is definitely Debbie Collier. I'm hoping that hearing this will convince the people who continue to believe it's someone other than Debbie that it is indeed Debbie Collier. Moving on to a slightly different topic, the police stated that this crime was personal and targeted. When Debbie's husband, Steve Collier, was asked what family Debbie had in the area, he replied, just her daughter, Amanda. I believe Debbie's son, Jeffrey Bearden, has a solid alibi because he lives in Maryland. And the police did confirm that Steve Collier was seen on video footage working all day at the Synovus Bank location in Athens, parking cars for the Georgia Bulldogs home game. So if Jeffrey is ruled out, Steve Collier is ruled out, who does that leave in terms of family in Athens, Georgia? Only Amanda Bearden. But it's possible that the police maybe also mean that it could be a friend or some other acquaintance. Personally, I do not believe that the truck driver from the accident that Debbie had four months earlier is the perpetrator. First, he turned out not to be an ex-felon, as Amanda Bearden had told her aunt, Diane Shirley. 
And why would he wait four months if he had such pent-up rage about Debbie Collier reporting the accident to the police and her insurance company? The truck driver theory, to me, seems like a stretch. Moving on to the topic of the crime scene, there are multiple crime scenes in this case. If Debbie was abducted from her home in Athens that morning, then the Collier home may be part of the overall crime scene. Debbie's rental vehicle is also a crime scene. It's the last place Debbie was seen, and if someone was inside the van or SUV, whatever you want to call it, with her, that person, unless they were completely wrapped in saran wrap, will likely have shed some DNA, perhaps strands of hair, fibers from clothing, fingerprints, who knows. Fingers crossed the investigators are able to locate such evidence in that van. such as leaves from walking through the woods. They should be able to tell if Debbie did walk into the woods or if she was carried. When the investigators who were first on the scene to look for Debbie Collier walked through the woods, they first came upon an area where it looked like a fire had been started. But they had to walk farther into the woods and down an embankment to locate Debbie. They discovered her lying on her back with her head up toward the hill and her feet pointing down toward the ravine. Her right hand was clutching a small tree. The police also observed blackened areas on her stomach. I'm now wondering if Debbie maybe crawled or slid down the embankment trying to get away from that fire. Could she perhaps have been sliding down the embankment and then reached out to the small tree to stop herself from falling or sliding farther down? Was that the last effort she was able to muster before she died? The police found the red tote bag, the blue tarp, and some of the paper towels that Debbie bought at the family dollar store in Clayton in the woods but they made no mention of finding the torch lighter and the rain poncho, nor did they mention finding any cans of gasoline. As I'm listening to myself talk about this, it dawned on me that maybe that rain poncho was used as something to protect the perpetrator, put the poncho over themselves, to protect them from any debris or anything that might occur at the crime scene, then toss the rain poncho to get rid of the evidence. So it doesn't sound like the perpetrator or perpetrators used an accelerant to start the fire or to pour over Debbie. I'm thinking that the torch lighter might have been used directly on her stomach in a targeted move to inflict pain. 
I say that because it's odd to have just one area that's blackened like that. The police also made no mention of finding Debbie's red t-shirt. A veteran private eye from Utah named Jason Jensen believes that the answer to the question, who did Debbie Collier in, lies in the data from Debbie's cell phone, which was found smashed at the crime scene, as well as data from cell towers. Jensen told the U.S. Sun, and I quote, The police will analyze who Debbie is talking to, texting, and communicating with, in addition to finding out why she was so far away from home in the first place. End quote. Note that the Venmo was sent to Collier's daughter, Amanda Bearden, in the minutes before Debbie's cell phone was turned off. Jason Jensen also said this, and I quote, We believe it was someone she knew because this person was likely the one who sent the Venmo for $2,385 along with the message. If the killer sent the Venmo, then it demonstrated that the killer possessed intimate interpersonal knowledge of Debbie's life, including where the hidden key was and that Amanda Bearden was her daughter, end quote. I think that's huge. If the person who harmed Debbie Collier sent the Venmo, perhaps in Debbie's presence as she sat in the family dollar store parking lot for those 12 minutes, it had to have been someone who knew about the blue flower pot and that Amanda Bearden was Debbie's daughter. There are probably only so many people who would know that stuff, right? I would say Steve Collier, but we know he was at work, and that's been proven through camera footage. It could also be Amanda Bearden's boyfriend, Andrew Geigerich, and it could also be Amanda Bearden herself. Are there any other people in Debbie's life who knew about those details, about the blue flower pot, the key being kept underneath it, and that Amanda Bearden was her daughter. Jason Jensen also believes the message that went with the Venmo was a poorly crafted, transparent attempt to mislead the police and family members into believing a kidnapping had taken place. According to Jensen, the message, including the part, They Will Not Let Me Go, was intended to throw the police off to believe it was a random kidnapping. As for the specific amount, Jensen thought that that may be all that was available in the account. By the way, on the 911 call that Debbie's husband made to report her missing, he states that Debbie's credit card and driver's license were found upstairs. It remains unclear if that credit card found upstairs in Debbie's bedroom was the same card she used at the family dollar store. Jason Jensen said in a quote, If her card is the same card upstairs that was used at the family dollar store, it could mean one of two things. Firstly, it could mean Debbie did make it back home before her actual disappearance. Or it could mean 
that someone who had been with Debbie at the time she went to the family dollar store traveled back home and put it there. End quote. All of this made me think about what Amanda Bearden said she and her mother did Friday night. She said that she and Debbie ran errands together and then had dinner. Is it possible that Amanda said this to explain why her DNA may be found by the investigators in Debbie's rental vehicle? Remember, Amanda moved from Maryland back to Athens, Georgia, two days before Debbie disappeared. So that means Amanda was back in Georgia on Thursday, September 8th. She could not have been in the rental vehicle before that Thursday, and she likely would not have been in it until maybe Friday, as she told us, because she said she and her mom ran errands together. So did they take Debbie's rental vehicle to run those errands, or did Amanda Bearden drive her car and have her mother get into her vehicle? I'm thinking because Amanda clearly needed money for gas and a battery prior to coming to Athens that it's likely they would have taken her mother's vehicle because why use your gas when you can use your mother's gas, right? Isn't that what people who need money from their parents would likely do? Inquiring minds want to know. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Now do me a favor, if you enjoyed this video, if you learned anything from it, please smash that like button, leave me a comment, and subscribe to my channel. It's a free way you can help me.